Good day, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of Unboxing the Faith. Last month, we learned why a Catholic church must have a crucifix and what it means. Now that got us wondering, what else in our church buildings have such profound meaning to them? And what beauty is in the Catholic church? Well, today, we have a Catholic architect and an author from the US to share with us on beauty and Catholic architecture. What do you believe? Organ. Eucharist. Saints. Christmas. Tradition. Sacraments. Hymns. Trinity. Easter. Mary. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Our faith is not a question of I think. It's a question of Jesus Christ has taught us through the church. All right. Welcome, Dr. Dennis, and a very good morning to you in the U.S. Yeah, good to see you too, Ian. I'm just drinking my coffee. I know it's bedtime where you are practically. But, uh, <laughs> happy that this didn't happen to be in the middle of the night for any of us. So thanks yeah, so much. 13 hours away. Yeah, 13 hours away, but it, it won't stop us from, you know, learning more about the faith. All right. We over here at on Unboxing the Faith are fans of the Liturgy Guys, which you are a part of. So we can't help but to be excited when you agreed to doing this podcast with us. But of course, not all of our listeners have an idea of who the liturgy guys are. So I'll, I'll just give you the floor for a minute to let you just introduce yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, the liturgy guys is a podcast that uh, I started together with uh, Chris Karstens, who's a, a faculty member at the liturgical Institute at Mundelein and Jesse uh, Weiler, who was when we started uh, working there as well. And I'm actually an architectural historian. My doctorate's in architectural history, but in God's providence was asked in my first job, which lasted 20 years to teach in the liturgical studies program. So had this funny combination of my academic degree being in art and architecture and then teaching theology. And together, they sort of developed what I call architectural theology, which, I'm, you know, we've heard of moral theology and we've heard of uh, other kinds of theology, sacramental theology. I don't know that people think of architectural theology, but that's the, the little tiny niche that I've created for myself. And I think uh, I'm the only one in it, but it works pretty well. And now I teach at Benedictine College in Kansas and run something called the Center for Beauty and Culture, which is specifically meant to reach out for things like this. So I'm so happy that you called invited because this is uh, exactly what I've uh, been asked to do here is to spread the word as far as it can go. And uh, this is about as far from Kansas as we can get, I think. So thank you. <laughs> we'll probably be the furthest uh, visitors we'll have uh, one day soon. Yes. All right. So let's just get started, shall we? Uh, we love the CCC here. So in every now and then, we try to squeeze a paragraph in, and today is no exception, right? So I'll quote the CCC. I'll give a, a one paragraph of the CCC, and then you just give us a wider perspective, all right? So sure. here we go. CCC 1180. It says, when the exercise of religious liberty is not thwarted, Christians construct buildings for divine worship. These visible churches are not simply gathering places but signify and make visible the church living in this place, the dwelling of God with men reconciled and united in Christ. Now, Dr. Dennis, what is the bigger picture here? Uh, there's a lot packed in that, uh, in that sentence. Well, the very first part, when the you know, exercise of religion is not thwarted, 
you know, there's a lot of argument about whether or not a church is actually a solemn public building, or is it just, you know, the living room of God? And so there's a big, you know, break there between some Protestants and Catholics and Byzantines about whether a church is just a domestic building or whether it's the sacred, solemn, uh, consecrated building, more like the temple. And so there's two streams of uh, thinking in, in architecture. One's the synagogue and one is the temple. And Catholics, of course, are much more comfortable with the temple priests and sacrifices and incense and vestments and all that. Um, so, you know, people have argued that the first couple of centuries of the church were the authentic centuries when people were worshiping in their homes. And actually, the apostles said the apostles broke bread in their homes. So a lot of times in the 20th century, many Catholics would say, oh, yeah, the church is the big house. And so the interiors are like living rooms and they have wooden floors and clear glass windows and house plans and carpet. And so by that little phrase in the beginning, when the you know worship is not thwarted, in other words, the early Christians couldn't build big churches because they weren't permitted. But when they got permission, they started building these churches that were signifying something. And, you know, we have a sacramental religion that matter reveals invisible realities. And, you know, what it says there is the the uniting of God and his people, that Christians are present in a place. That's a very serious claim. The presence mm -hmm. of God in the world is what the Israelites are looking for, for the whole Old Testament, right? Adam and Eve are happy with God in the garden. And then after the fall, there's this kind of rupture or, you know, wounding of that relationship. And then the golden calf is a real, you know, wounding of that relationship when the Israelites are worshiping false gods. And then they're always saying, how do we get God back? How do we get the presence of God? Nowhere is better to be than the temple because the presence of God is a dynamic active force that makes things holy. And so when you build a building, you're saying, oh, God is present in this place, not only in the tabernacle, as we might expect, but in the, the assembly that's worshiping as Christ. And you can see this if you drive past a highway and you see a church steeple sticking up. A lot of the cities in the U.S., uh, they plowed through these highways in the 1950s, right in the old ethnic neighborhoods. And you can see all these church steeples and you're like, oh, there are Christians over there, there are Christians over there, there are Christians over there. And so it becomes a sign, not just as a natural, uh, a neutral meeting hall or gathering place, as it says, but as a place where the active dynamic presence of God is dwelling on earth. And that's a really important thing. It's not quite as important as the active <laughs> dynamic presence of God in the Eucharist, but it's the same kind of idea just extended out into brick and stone. Right, right. So I guess we can go a little bit further into this. What exactly does the church mean then? Well, there's a lot of architecture in scripture. You think about how much of the Old Testament is taken up with the tabernacle of Moses and the temple. Do this, do this, make it this high, this many cubits, make this out of gold, four colors of wool and all this. Then, you know, there's the temple of Solomon, uh, which is the entire energies of Israel is on building the temple, a temple mount. Christ is walking in the courtyard. Um, and then his own body is compared to the temple. I mean, that's an amazing thing. He's speaking of the temple of his body. So when you say a building and, and Christ, well, then you flip it around the other way and you say, okay, the building signified Christ in the Old Testament and let us know what Christ would be like. But now the building still signifies Christ in the New Testament, except that it's a sign of the many members rightly assembled with Christ as their head. This is what the right for dedication of a church says. There's a little page in the front that says the nature of churches and flat out says the church building is an image of the capital C church, right? The people who are assembled in the right order under the headship of Christ who are acting as Christ. But it also says it's the church on earth and the church in heaven. It's the church militant, the church triumphant. It's all of creation. 
And so the church building actually allows you to experience what it would be like to be in heaven. It's not just that you paint angels on the walls and say, oh, this is what I think heaven looks like. Heaven is rightly assembled members as Christ entering into the dialogue of the Trinity in the place where the Trinity dwells. And normally we don't have mystical visions. I mean, some people do. Uh, I don't. But you get carried off to visions of heaven and maybe you see heaven and everybody asks you, what's it like? What's it like? Who did you talk to? What did it sound like? What did it look like? Well, what we should be able to say is it looked just like the street down the corner. Go down to St. Joseph Church and it looked like that, right? It's centered on God. It's glorified. It's perfected. It's radiant. It's colorful. It's populated with angels and saints. It's the new garden because St. John, the end of the Bible, sees new heaven and a new earth. So the earth is brought to glory. And so you have garden imagery, you have angels, you have saints, you have the Trinity, everything brought to perfection. And if your church looks like that, it's not just old-fashioned, like, oh, this is what churches used to look like with lots of statues. No, it's anticipating the heavenly future that we want to come to. And then you get to encounter it. I don't know, you know, in Malaysia, did the, did the old Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie uh, ever get translated into Malay? Or just, did you grow up watching that, that movie? Well, I certainly didn't. But or maybe it's not in English. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's a movie where these kids go into this chocolate factory and they win a ticket to go. And there's a scene in the movie, and I use this on the Liturgy Guys podcast a lot, where they go into the chocolate factory, but it's not a bunch of machines. It's like a garden. There's a chocolate river running through it, and there are gumdrops that fall off the trees. And they walk in this place, and they do not care at all what is outside because they've left the earth, and they've come into this kind of magical place where they're not just knowing, hmm, what's God like? What's heaven like? They're actually experiencing what I call the liturgical jacuzzi, you may remember from the liturgy guys, actually sitting in the hot waters and the hot water and the bubbles, you experience what that might feel like. And so to go into a church that's properly designed as a church, at the minimum should be recognizable as a church. But then at this high level is to walk around in this experiential uh, anticipation of heavenly glory. And that's hard to do, but we've been doing it for a long time. All I have to do is look at lots of examples of churches that have successfully done it, and you'll see there's kind of a checklist. Is it glorified? Is it colorful? Is it radiant? Is it populated with angels and saints? The altar is Christ, the documents say, rendered present as a table, you know? So it's not just an earthly table, but it's a table of glorified heavenly banqueting table, which is the body of Christ itself. And if your altar doesn't look like that, then People go ho-hum, this kind of minimum and sort of boring, but you spend enough money on an altar and make it out of pieces of colorful stone. And people say, oh yeah, wow, that's fascinating. Let me go look at that. Like the resurrected Christ after the, after the resurrection, people are looking at him and saying, I thought you were dead and now you're radiant and glorified. And Thomas puts his hands in the side and early Christians said the wounds in Christ's hands were like gems, like rubies that they found fascinating. So resurrected, glorified, anticipating heaven. These are all the things that a church is so that we can encounter them here on earth and then be ready for them when, when we meet St. Peter, the pearly gates. He won't say, how many books have you read? Probably. But you can say, I've been singing the song of heaven, the holy, holy, holy. I've been looking at the sights of heaven in my church, and now I'm ready to be there with the Trinity and the entire mystical body. Yeah, what a what a nice introduction to what a church is. So Yeah, it's complicated business, church architecture, but it's really great stuff. And that's why you're in that field, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many things that come into it. Is it the temple? Is it the garden? Is it the mystical body of Christ? Is it the people? Is it the church? Is it Christ? It's, and the answer is yes, it's all of those things. It's the wedding hall of heaven and earth. Christ marries himself to humanity to bring it into the, the family of the Trinity. So it's a place of festivity. 
and you see what we do on Easter and put flowers all over the place. That's, that's not just because we always do it. It's because it's the sign of this uniting of the wedding of heaven and earth. And uh, if your church isn't festive, if it's not happy, if it's not colorful, it's not populated with the angels, then you go, eh, kind of boring. And you sort of do the minimum to, to uh, avoid mortal sin. But that's not what we've been asked to do. We've been asked to celebrate, to delight, to be formed by it, to walk around in heavenly glory. And uh, that's, the, that's the minimum. That's what you tell your architects. This is the program. The program isn't how many seats and how many bathrooms. The program is how do you make our building an image of the heavenly Jerusalem? And if an architect doesn't know what the heavenly Jerusalem is, then they either better read really fast or you get a better architect. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into architecture then. So I understand, obviously, when we talk about architecture, uh, it's more of a visual presentation traditionally, right? But for us, obviously, it's just an audio podcast. We'll try to make it as optic audible as possible. We just made a new word there. But I think we can start off with this, right? What is Catholic architecture? Well, on one hand, it's practical. Keeps the rain off your head. Where you live, you probably need some air conditioning and some dehumidification (laughs) in bathrooms. We just use fans. (laughs) Yeah, that's the minimum, right? That's what every, you know, auditorium would have. But if you start to say the church building is an image of Christ, as we were just talking, then it actually becomes in the sacramental sense and you know the broad sense of a sacrament it's the use of matter to make otherwise unknowable spiritual realities knowable to the senses the eucharist is the primary example right it's the real presence of christ in the fullest way but then as you extend that out you know you can be the presence of christ to those who are sick to those who are poor by you know clothing naked and helping feeding the hungry you are present as christ to them through the medium of you but you can also speak of Christ being present through the medium of art and architecture. It's a little easier in a statue, right? You see a Sacred Heart statue, you say, oh, there's Christ. Somehow Christ is being made known to me. But then if you extend it out to the building, it doesn't look like Jesus quite so much, but it's the same notion from some of the epistles. It's you are God's building. I laid the foundation and you, you know, followed after me. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are God's building. So if the church is this assemblage of parts, people, priests, uh, non-priests, laity, cantors, lectors, and everybody's assembled properly, parents, children, they form this image of the church, and then the church building is an image of them. But what the church building can do that regular people can't do is it shows heavenly membership in the mystical Mm -hmm. body of Christ too. So that's why you need saints and angels in, in mosaics or paintings or statues. It's not just a statue in the corner for the old ladies who like to light candles. It's, a, it's telling us and allowing us to participate in the reality of the liturgy. If you want to talk Vatican II here, right? Full, conscious, active, and fruitful participation in the liturgy. How can you have full participation if you don't know who, with whom you're participating, right? I'm singing the holy, 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 as all the introductions to it always say. We join our voices with the angels and the saints as we cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then the church building lets us see those angels and saints with whom we're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so the incense allows us to smell what the prayer rising around the throne of God would look like. Flowers uh, also let us see the return to the garden, sometimes real, you know, natural fresh flowers, but also flowers kind of carved or painted into a wall. So what we have here is an image of our own heavenly future. You know, I don't know if The Wizard of Oz is a a universal enough movie (laughs) around the world. Okay. You know, the Emerald City is where they're all trying to get, right? And they're following the yellow brick road and they can always see it in the, in the distance. 
the church building in a way is like that. I think the, the guy who wrote with the Wizard of Oz must have read the book of Revelation because he's always the Emerald City is made of you know gems and the heaven is made of gems in the in the book of uh, Revelation. And so we have this notion, our future is always calling us, that throne of God, this song with the angels, even though we're not there yet, we're learning, we're apprenticing, and then we are being formed. So the architecture is actually a really important formative part of liturgical life and action and also evangelization, because you know what people do when there's a beautiful church, all the tourists come to uh, to look at it, and they don't come to the boring ones. And so what an opportunity you have to say, hey, let's give you a tour. Here's a brochure. Let me tell you about why we built our church this way. See that image of the saint and that angel and that whatever? This is what we believe. And nobody's banging down your door at the ugly churches to say, tell me about Catholicism, but they might at the beautiful churches. I was reading a little bit about Kuala Lumpur on the, this morning, just because I don't know much about it. I said it said it was, I think, the sixth most visited city in the world, for, mostly for shopping and you know other stuff like that, secular pursuits. It's like, what if you had the most beautiful cathedral in, the, in Asia, and then all these people are coming here? We're we're putting their your church on their uh, visitor list. These people of obvious means, you know, what a great conversion opportunity might be there. Yeah, I would agree. What a missed opportunity, or at least now an opportunity now that you mentioned it. Yeah. Mm. All right. So let's let's move on a little bit. Um, I think this might be an interesting question for the older folks as well. Why are the older churches built in a shape of a cross with, you know, just a, a church with two wings, as, as uh, we usually see? Or are this, this form would, call, would also be known as the cruciform? And why don't we really see this design anymore in quote-unquote, modern churches? Well, the, the cruciform plan is not mandatory, right? Some of the earliest churches in Rome had more of a T-shaped plan, more of the Tau cross mm. rather than a full Roman cross, as it's called, or Latin cross. And so it's not necessary, but it gets highly developed, especially in the Middle Ages, as an image of the forming of the people into the shape of the body of Christ. So we're talking mm. about the people in the pews together with their head signified by, you know, it's Christ signified by the priest. And if you assemble them into the form of the cross, then they actually are, you know, just more fully uh, signifying what they're actually doing liturgically, which is offering the same sacrifice of Christ to the Father that Christ offered, and they're joining their sacrifice to it. You can have some churches that are round or rectangular in the Byzantine tradition, the Orthodox tradition, they're often square and, and cubic in volume because the book of Revelation describes heaven as having a square plan and a cubic volume. And so it doesn't have to be cruciform, but often it is. The question is why it didn't happen in the 20th century. Modernism as an architectural movement was invented by Enlightenment secularists who believed that our age was only dominated by industry. So there was this theory that comes, people argue from Hegel, that every age has its spirit, and the spirit of the age of the 20th century was industrial. It wasn't the age of faith anymore. That was the Middle Ages. It wasn't the age of stone carving and you know handcraft. It was the age of glass and steel and concrete. And so the only true architecture of our time was an architecture that looked like a factory because the factory was the pinnacle of the 20th century, what was real. Now, of course, the Catholic would say, well, sure, we have factories, but what's even more real is we worship God, we assemble as the mystical body. It's still an age of faith for us. So why are we letting the architecture of the, the factory become the norm for us? It doesn't mean we don't use steel or electricity or you know air conditioning. It's great to have those things, but it doesn't have to look like a factory. And so the 20th century had the architects, and in many places, these are, even though it's the 21st century, these people are still dominant in all of the architecture schools and the architecture profession. 
No, mostly because they haven't heard anything else. They've been taught. This is the only true architecture. And it's, it's like a cult almost. That if you build something traditional in architecture school, you put a column in a traditional column, they'll tell you to take it out. And if you don't, they'll fail you. And if you keep doing it, they'll throw you out of the architecture school. I mean, this is how, how it is. It's like trying to get a theology degree and denying the divinity of Christ. You know, the first time you do it, well, let me tell you. The second time you do it, it's like, uh, we told you. And the third time we do it, it's like, you're not really Catholic. Maybe you should move on. Same thing in most architecture schools. And so the signification of things other than the factory or the machine was something that just fell away. And so trying to recapture that again, at the minimum, something cruciform, but then at the maximum, this evocation of the heavenly Jerusalem is something that nobody learns in architecture school and almost nobody learns it in seminary. So we have clients ask who don't know what they should be asking for, asking architects who don't know what they should be giving. And then you see the results are these really bland modernist buildings. See, I think, I think, I think um, for Malaysia, we do have churches that are placed in factory lots as well and surrounded by factories. And I think because of the surroundings, you know, you can't help but to mimic what you have in your surroundings, right? But I guess my question would be also, how would you recapture the beauty into these kinds of uh, churches that is placed in such an environment? Yeah, just because you're in a, an area full of factories doesn't mean you have to be the factory, especially as a church, you would say, I'm the thing that's different from everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if McDonald's came in, your city and wanted to be seen, they wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, let's just leave off the golden arches and all the signs that say McDonald's or whatever. They would, they would say, we have to be recognizable, right? We need to use the semiotics or the sign value of what we are. And so the, what a church is, is this glorified assemblage of parts. You can, you can do this a million ways. You know, there's a beautiful cathedral in um, Vietnam, in Phat Diem, which use the Asian traditions of the red lacquered wooden columns and everything. And you see the, the, um, Asian inscriptions on the ceiling and so on, but it looks like a church because it looks important. The altar is clearly the altar. It's got carved panels of wood. And so, you know, there might be this question, why would you import, you know, Western styles into Asia? It's not about style. It's about the fundamental concept of what a church is. Glorified, perfected, anticipating heaven, populated with angels and saints, colorful. You know, there's a whole theology of gems in scripture because when St. John and the book of Revelation sees heaven, he says there's, the walls are covered in gems and the gems have the names of the apostles on them. It's kind of strange. But remember, if people are the temple, this place where God dwells, then they're compared to stones and stones brought to glory are gems. So a rock on the sidewalk is one thing, a rock that's cut and polished and becomes a diamond and emerald, a sapphire, ruby is another thing. Now you can't really make your churches out of sapphires and rubies, people would steal them. But you can use colorful brick in patterns that look like, oh, hey, here's something that the walls appear to be made of gems, pieces rightly assembled. Um, choose stone over concrete, if you can, at least as, as a veneer or something. Um, try not to make it look like a factory. Look to the traditions that have been inherited. And we have long, many centuries of tradition um, to say, okay, these are recognizable by most people as the signs of ecclesiastical character. So there's domestic character, which looks like a house. There's industrial character, which looks like a factory. But there's also ecclesiastical character. And that's the key thing. Does the building have an ecclesiastical character? Or does it look like one of the other hotels or factories in town? And we'll put a big cross on it, and then everybody knows it's a church. I always tell people, if you have to put a big cross on something to know what it is, that is an admission of failure because the building doesn't tell you what it is. And um, 
the churchness of the church would come through in the architecture. And there's a million ways to do it. But if it's not done, then it looks like something else or it looks plain and beige and then you just walk by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I think I've come across this interesting fact as well uh, recently. And I think it would be nice to share with the listeners. And it's this thing called the Axis Mundi. Mundi? Mundi. Now, yeah, what mundi, is mundi. Either one, mundi? Yeah. yeah. So what is the Axis Mundi in the church? Well, this is the crossing place of the world, right? That where the mm. sort of T shape or the cross shape. And there are lots of different axes in the world. Uh, you know, the Romans used to start building cities as military camps, and they would draw two lines in the in the land, and it was the axis crossing of the city. And the center of the city was always the place of the highest importance. So the axis mundi literally just means the crossing spot of the world. And so Christ, in a sense, is the true axis mundi. Everything is, he came from heaven down, right, vertically, and then he met the horizontality of creation and the earth and the two, where the two meet. You could say it's the Eucharist, you could say it's Christ, it's where heaven and earth meet. And so a church, every church, is a place where heaven and earth meet. In that sense, every church, whether it's important church, cathedral church, basilica, whatever, is a place of the uniting of heaven and earth. And the altar is a, sometimes compared to a, a wedding table. In the Jewish tradition, and this still happens um, in, in certain branches of Judaism, uh, couples will get married under a four-columned canopy called a chuppah. And this is the marking of weddings. People get married right under them. And so the baldacchino, which is the four-canopy, columned canopy that you see in traditional churches has often been said, okay, it's the covering of where heaven and earth are, are getting married, you know, right at the altar, matter and spirit, God and humanity, heaven and earth, uh, the, the uncreated and the created. And so you say, oh, well, Baldacchino or this canopy, oh, it's just old fashioned stuff. No, it's a signifier of something really important. This is the axis mundi of the world in this place where God is present with his uh, people. And so whether it's a modest church or a great church, the altar is always that that place. Mm, yeah, because I can only imagine uh, if, for example, if you're getting married and then you're standing at where heaven and earth meets, that's just, uh, yeah, signs, of, signs and symbols of heavenly realities, I would say. Right, and that's a great quote from the Second Vatican Council, <laughs> chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 7, paragraph 122 or 123 that all sacred art should be signs and symbols of heavenly realities. That's the, that is the great Vatican II mandate. The Vatican II mandate is not beige, boring, domestic, uh, you know, concrete or beige paint. It's signs and symbols of heavenly realities. And if architects aren't designing the building to look like that, then they're not meeting the program. They're, they're actually failing in what a church uh, should be. You know, if you designed your hospital and it didn't have operating rooms, you'd say, Oh, architects, don't you know what you're doing? Or a schoolroom without uh I mean, a school without classrooms, and you design your church, you say the whole reason for the church beyond its basic function is to signify and make present Christ dwelling with his people. And then you say, well, where does Christ dwell? He dwells in heaven. So heaven comes to earth. Architect, this is your job. And if you don't know what that is, we'll find somebody else. I know that's tough talk, but if your architect isn't up for the job, you can't teach them. It's like, would you have a brain surgeon? He said, well, you know, I, I'm not really a podiatrist, but I'll, I'll work on your brain. I'll read some books about brains and then don't worry. I'll be your first. I'll, I'll learn by then. You, of course not. Right. But we do this with architects all the time. I don't worry. I think uh, we have an Asian culture right here where tough love is all love. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> all right, let's move along. Now, obviously the main reason why we wanted you to be on the, on the, on the podcast with us is because 
our little chapel of Christus Amen, which has been a shop lot for about 45 years, has finally been given a piece of land, although a small one, but a piece of land nonetheless. Right, so I'd like to ask, how would someone like you uh, go about designing a building that has offices, classrooms, a hall, priest residence, and most importantly, a place of worship all in one place while still making it look like a church with all these facilities? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge when you don't have a lot of um, space. Space. And it all has to be kind of crammed together in, in one building. There's a, there are a couple of things that I would look at. In the 1920s, in New York City, as New York City was growing and in, in increasing in density, people invented something called the Skyscraper Church. And there are a number of them that actually got finished, and they had these city lots that were quite valuable. But then people weren't living in the cities as all the office towers came in and everything, so they would move to other parts. And so here was this valuable city lot where the churches would tear down their old church, and they'd build the church in the bottom. And then build a skyscraper on top with offices and apartments, and then there'd be a steeple on top of the cross. And so they were responding to the fact that the urbanization of New York was happening. Their land was quite valuable. But at the bottom, they'd put a big arch door made of stone that was quite traditional. And you'd you know, preserve the first floor with stained glass windows. So anybody who was walking by would see a traditional church entrance. If they looked up, they would see you know, what you would think of as a skyscraper. And then at the top, from a distance, you would see a tower. In fact, in Chicago, which is growing so rapidly, there was a height limit on buildings. So there's a building there called the, the Chicago Methodist Temple. It's still there today. And they actually got permission from the city to um, increase the height limit and put a big steeple on it with a cross so that the cross would be the tallest thing on the skyline. They were getting nervous that all these office towers were making the churches look um, short. So here's a lesson. How do you cram lots of things in a building and still make it look like a church? We also have a phenomenon here in the U.S. Or called Newman Centers, where uh, college students have a chaplaincy at their university. And oftentimes it's a very similar situation. They have a small lot in the middle of university and they need meeting rooms and a chapel and a place for the priest to live. And there've been a number of these, half dozen to a dozen built in the last 10, 15 years in the US where they have this exact problem. There's one in Madison, Wisconsin, um, that has the church at the bottom and the buildings on top. And you see the great door that still looks like a church and they have to get all this program, all these things in this little city lot. And it is very possible, and it doesn't have to look like a skyscraper and you know, find the church in it somewhere. Give it the ecclesiastical character first, and then you can say, how can we get all the program in there? And that's the first way to decide. Because if Christ says, I am the door, right? What does that mean? I'm the way to the Father. I'm the opening into heaven. I'm the torn veil of the two rooms of the temple. Well, then the door of a church is darn important. And it's much more important than the, the door of a dorm or a, a fast food restaurant or something. So that should win. That should recognize, be recognizable all the way down the street. And you cite the building so that the sight lines in the city all kind of converge on it if you can. And then you make an ecclesiastical facade on it. And then to the degree that you can, you make the interior tall volume, ideally twice as high as it is wide. That's the real key thing about interiors feeling ecclesiastical. If they're twice as wide as they are high, they always feel like long, low shoebox basement churches, and then they never give you that sense of elevation. But the first thing is ecclesiastical character first, not office building character first, and then tuck a chapel in somewhere. It's the other way around. Make it a church, and then find a way to get all the function in. All right. All right. Yeah. So if, even though it is going to be a short uh, episode, we'll just wrap it up here. All right. So... We just like to ask you, maybe you want to share, you know, to an architect or an inspiring architect, 
what they need to take into consideration when designing a church? Any pointers you want to give them? Sure. I think it's kind of an unfair thing to ask architects to design churches when they're utterly unequipped. Nobody in architecture school has read the book of Revelation. Nobody in architecture school understands when Christ is compared to the temple. Nobody in architecture school has read the temple interior with its wooden panels carved of cedar uh, that had trees and leaves and angels. Nobody understands what the veil means. Nobody understands the Holy of Holies. What's the Ark of the Covenant? What is the presence of God on earth? What's the sacramentality of church architecture? And then we ask them to do the very thing that they have no idea how to do. So as a client, I'd say, find an architect who understands this stuff. Find an architect who's actually trained in traditional design. And there are very, you know, minority of those, but there are many. I don't know if there are any in Malaysia, but, you know, there are architects from the U.S. or Britain who would love an opportunity to design a church in Malaysia and to bring this big renewal of traditional design that's happened in the U.S. to other parts uh, of the world. And um, so that's as a client, the right architect is the most important thing. And now if you're an architect and you say, okay, well, how do I learn all this stuff? I can be a little self-serving here, but I, I wrote a book called Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy, which walks through all of these things one chapter at a time. Uh, there's lots of videos out there. There, um, The big revival of traditional church design that's happening in the U.S. is um, is now quite mature, you know, 15, 20, 25 years old. Duncan Stroek as an architect is one. James McCreary is another one. Frank and Lawson is another one. They all have web pages full of the possibility of beautiful churches. There's a brand new cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's just three years old, uh, quite traditional. Another one in Raleigh, North Carolina, just to show you what's possible. And then look at the Newman Centers uh, or these college chaplaincies at uh, USC, at Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, they're going up all over the place and they're proving that traditional architecture can be done on small lots with complex programs and have it still uh, look like a church. So that's the responsibility of an architect. It's not just solve the practicalities of the function of the program, but use matter to make the glory and the realities of heaven known on earth. And if you don't know how to do that, don't take the job. And if you don't know how to do that, read really fast or bring someone on your committee who, uh, who knows these things and work together. But don't just go blindly into a thing um, without knowing what the purpose and meaning and reality of a church is. All right. Uh Thank you so much, Dr. Dennis, for, you know, being on with us and just sharing your vast amount of knowledge with us today. Well, happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. As you can tell, I like to talk about this stuff. So anytime <laughs> you want to do this again, just let me know. All right. Sure thing. So to our listeners, if you'd like to find out more on Catholic architecture, Dr. Dennis has written, like you mentioned, a number of books, which we will link in the show notes. And also, for any updates, you can refer to our website, our Facebook, and our Telegram accounts. And also, follow this podcast so you know when our next episode drops. All right, see you guys. Unboxing the Faith is brought to you by the Social Communications Ministry of the Chapel of Christus Aman.